we are studying a portion of scripture written by the Apostle Peter. And so, this is a letter that he wrote to a bunch of Christians scattered and battered. They're suffering for living the Christian life. And as they face these sufferings, Peter wants to encourage them. We've come to a part in his letter where he is helping them learn to be in the world, but to not be of the world. He's showing them that God has purpose for wanting us in the world. Not of the world system, but in it. And that's what we mean when we say not of the world. We mean not of the world's system. We are to be in the world for influence. And he has this thought that is running from chapter 2, verse 11 through Verse 20. Now you remember we've titled it Censoring Critics, Captivating Converts. And if you're wondering, where'd you get that from? Well, look at verse 15. Where it says that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The critics of Christianity are silenced by the godly living of Christians. It is not our magnificent arguments. It is not our debates that are going to silence them. It is by the godly living of Christians living an above-reproach life before them. Now, why does God want our critics silenced? Have you asked that question? He obviously wants them to be silenced because he says that here in verse 15. Romans 3.19 has this answer, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, every mouth needs to be closed so that the world can be saved. Well, that should tell us something. Our words aren't really worth much, and they often get in the way. If our mouths need to be closed in order for us to be saved, then then our words really, they should tell you about your words. And our conversations. Not just the value of your knowledge in your mind, but the value of your knowledge once it comes out of your mouth. And in fact, sometimes I wonder if there's something that happens when we get good knowledge that comes in our head by the time it goes out our mouth. So God has 
people silenced so that they can do what we learned in our class this morning. Listen to him. Transfiguration, Matthew 17. The statement that the Father said to those three disciples there was, listen to him. We can't listen to him if our mouths are going. So God can save people. That's why there needs to be a silencing. And how you get to that place of silencing, how does God do it? Through our lives. Yes, there has to be a clear gospel message, but what the Lord does is use the life of transformed sinners to attract unbelievers to that gospel message. See, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm reminded of this. Um, I think it's in First Thessalonians. Chapter 1, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What is the power that he is speaking of? He is speaking of the power that God uses through the lives of transformed sinners so that you can see this gospel's real. And then you believe it. How we live, how we handle adversity has always had a profound effect on the lost around us. Stephen, the deacon in the early church, was preaching the gospel to the Jews and then they stoned him. Now, earlier in chapter 6, it says that Stephen was a man full of faith, full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit. Godly guy. He opens his mouth and they stone him. Too much conviction, right? But watch this, Acts 7. As they were stoning Stephen to death, it says Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's pretty phenomenal. There's the heart of a person who's uh, loving and merciful, and gracious like our Lord. He's not preaching so that God might, you know, toast a bunch of people. He's preaching people actually might be rescued. Like Jude says, be snatched from the fire. Cares about him. They're killing him. They're stoning him. And then you look at verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who's Saul? He's the guy who would later become Paul and write most of the New Testament that we have today. This guy was instrumental in the death of Stephen. Proclaimer of the Lord's gospel. And then he would become 
Paul, writer of most of the New Testament, he's the one that started all those churches, like the one in Thessalonica and like the one in Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and so forth. And so the Lord used the adversity of Stephen and his prayer to be profound influence in Paul's life. He never forgot that kind of mercy. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16, that's exactly what he says. I, a blasphemer, found mercy. God used Stephen's submission to the Jews to be a drawing of Paul to salvation later. How about Nicodemus and the Roman soldier? And that Roman soldier and Nicodemus both saw Jesus get falsely accused by the governing authorities, saw Jesus get beaten and berated and was shown to be innocent by Pilate and questioned about being a king by Pilate. And you remember he questioned him like he was a rebel against the government. They saw how Jesus was treated and they heard Jesus pray, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what what they do. And then they saw Jesus forgive that thief on the cross and offer him salvation. And Matthew twenty seven fifty four tells us the centurion said this truly this was the Son of God. Mark 15.39 says it was because he saw the way he breathed his last. What's the point? The way Stephen and Jesus handled severe adversity to death had profound impact on those around them. Unto salvation. God used it to save them. And that's the point of 1 Peter 2.23. We're going to find out later on when we read through there, 1 Peter. In fact, look at it. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. That's how he handled the government against him. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. John MacArthur put it this way about that. How a believer reacts to the world's violence, to the world's injustice, to the world's persecution, to the world's perpetration of murder is a definite key as to how the world will react to that Christian's message. The platform that we establish by the quality of our living in the the direst kind of circumstance is crucial to the impact of our testimony, end quote. That's our connection to 1 Peter 2, 13 and 17. So, let's turn there, if you would. Let's put it before us again. (coughs) Allow me if you would, to read this aloud 
and you read quietly. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now we are described as Christians in three ways before three arenas in our life. First of all, we're described as strangers. And some of us, when we found that out, said, okay, there, that makes sense now. Finally, it's put in print. I always, people have always told me I'm strange. There it is. No, you have to understand what he means by that there in verses 11 and 12. Strangers before the world, okay? Strangers before the world. If you want to be strange before this world, do what he says. Just abstain from fleshly lusts. That's, that's strange stuff. Because who lives that way, right? That's strange to the world. We're, we're strange to the world's values. And then second, we live as citizens in the world. And that's verses 13 to 17. Now don't get confused. Yes, we must separate from the world system and values. But you know, he's not saying go isolate. He's not saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, don't live as a citizen in the world. You're a citizen of the kingdom, which is true. But it doesn't mean that we isolate. It doesn't mean that we shelter and run away. In fact, what it means, actually, it doesn't even mean that we stay on the outskirts and say, oh, I can't even, didn't didn't the Pharisees do this? I can't even touch the ground that they're on because I'll get contaminated. No. No. He says, get in it. Just don't be of it. Get in it. We are citizens in it. We show them how to be citizens at a different level. I love this thinking. It's radical thinking. I mean, sometimes I think we get the wrong understanding of Christianity. We, you, know, you run into passages like you know, 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. Oh, well, I better go miles away around the world. And he says, no, actually, go be in that world and show them what a person who loves Jesus is like. Show them what powerful living looks like. True living, when you have power over that, those, verse 11, fleshly lusts that want to just dominate our life. We show them how to be citizens at a different level. 
these days it's easy to be rebels against the you know, government and kind of want to shake the fist at it. All of the, you know, mistakes and the ways that the government is running things because of social media are just paraded quickly before everybody. And it's so easy to shake our fist. But I think that we're handling it wrongly when we do that because we're citizens in it. We are to show them how to be citizens at a different level. Why? Because we are citizens of a higher calling. And our kingdom is eternal. It's it's not here. But God's placed us here as citizens. And so it's important. That we understand verses 13 to 17 that way. And then in verses 18 to 20, as servants to the world. And we're going to learn about that. Now, how are we called to live as citizens in this world? One word, submissive. Submissively. To submit to the governing authorities over us. There in your notes. That's our calling to this world. And so there's the balance. Not like the world, but in it. Not shaped by it, but strategically placed in it to influence it for good. We're the Matthew 5.13 salt. And you know what salt does? It preserves. You ever wonder what, what are we preserving in the world? Well, we preserve a lot. We, We preserve righteousness. They would have no idea what true godliness looks like, what true righteousness looks like without Jesus living it through you in the world. And oftentimes we literally preserve them. Maybe dumb decisions they might make without having some light in the world. So it's God's mercy that way. Now we started describing our citizenship last time and Peter does it in six ways and we worked through the first two. So let's go back to it and try to understand this. Now submission to the governing authorities as citizens doesn't happen easily. In fact, what we're going to learn as we get all the way through chapter 3 and he he talks even about submission in, in, in a marriage, it doesn't happen easily or naturally. Okay? So we have to learn about this. You have to, that's why we're saying that you have to deal with some things. And you have to deal with that submission and those things connected to that submission in six different ways. So let's look at the first one again. Point number one you have to deal with the command. Verse 13a, look at the command. The command is submit yourselves. Now that's a command. That's a, that's a word of, that's an imperative. Christians by our new nature are people that can be commanded. Matthew 28, Jesus said, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, when he says that, what he's telling you and me is, a Christian then by nature is a person that can be commanded. Wasn't that part of the big problem before you were a Christian? You sort of had as your the mantra of your life, nobody 
Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody is the boss of me. Right? You remember that? Well, you didn't say it too loud. Some of you might have. Say, hey, nobody runs my life. I run my life. Well, that sounds very John Wayne-like, but hey, uh, doesn't really work out too well. Because then your boss says, hey, get back to work. Right? You mean so? Then you're like, okay, all right. But in my heart, you don't run my life, right? Maybe for the next eight hours or whatever. When you become a Christian, I mean, Jesus is our commander. And what he says, we give our lives to. That's one of the reasons why, for me personally, I can never be too hard on poor Peter. He says the dumbest things before you, there in the Gospels. He does. You know, I mean, there aren't too many people that Jesus said, get behind me, call him Satan, right? Okay, that's Peter. Boy, I tell you what, he was also the guy that said, I will give my life for you. And we know that he was really, you know, out kicking his coverage there. I mean, he, he was like, uh, he, was, he was getting out there, right? Saying, listen, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, all right? So I don't know if I like that kind of protection, okay? But his love was there. His heart was there. He was, you know, John 6. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, he says to Jesus, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. You're stuck with this guy. And of course, that thrilled the Lord's heart. And so, this command from Peter is given to us from Jesus through Peter. What is the command. Submit yourselves. Romans 13. Paul had to tell that church full of believers to do the same thing. Okay? And in that passage, Paul says to submit to the government is to submit to God. Human governing authority was established by God. You go against it and you go against God and will receive punishment for doing that. See, You can receive condemnation from You know, as I mentioned, we don't submit to anything too well, especially any human that has authority over us. And so we have to deal with this first one that, I mean, the point is that submission isn't an option. And then we have a second factor in our submission to the governing authorities to work through. Number two, you have to deal with the motive. You have to deal with the why question. What's the motive for submitting to the governing authorities, Peter says? For the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. We do it because we don't want to bring reproach on our Lord Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things to think about when we think about about our motive. I mean, Romans 13.5 says it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. In other words, it's always about the Lord. If you aren't submissive, he will use the government to bring wrath on you. He will. Who will? Jesus will. 
But your conscience also just knows it's right to submit. And, and, and by the way, that happened when God saved you. And now your conscience is sensitive to spiritual things, to wanting to please Him. That little alarm that says you're going in the wrong direction or, uh-oh, watch out, be careful. And then another motive is the fact that Jesus himself submitted to the governing authorities. And so we want to be like him. So do that. Now this is a very fascinating section in the Gospels where Jesus makes a statement about our relationship to the governing authorities. And I I really, uh, this might be helpful for you to see this. So turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. I tell you, this study right here is very helpful for me personally. Never been a big government guy. I mean, in terms of knowing all of the you know, government's doing anything, it's like, oh man, I don't know. Just, it's a lot of stuff going on out there behind closed doors and all that. They've got their laws and rules and all that. But boy, I tell you what, you read stuff like this. And it's helpful. Really kind of confronts the heart. Matthew 17, verse 24. Jesus and his disciples go to Capernaum, and some Jews go to Peter and ask uh, if if Jesus paid the the two drachma tax. What is the two drachma tax? That's a kind of money. It's a temple tax. And then Peter goes into the house and Jesus says says to him, and I love this, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? If I'm Peter, I'm thinking, wait a minute, were you just out there with me? Did you hear this? He always hears it, right? He's God. He knows. And so uh, Peter, so the question was, All right, when they go collecting this tax, do they collect it from their sons or from strangers? And Peter says, from strangers. And so Jesus says to him, so the sons are exempt, right? Yeah. In other words, the king's sons don't pay taxes. Why? Because they're in the family. It's covered. Let's watch this, verse 27. However... So that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. I don't know about you. Does that that make you have more questions than answers? You scratch your head going, okay, wait a minute. Are you saying you don't normally pay taxes, but go get it from a fish and that fish will pay my tax? Is that what's going on? Go find the, the, you know, the tax fish. He'll take care of it. What is this? I'll tell you what it is. Jesus is saying, I'm king. I'm the king. 
does the king have to pay the taxes? No. See the king over everything? Yeah. Does the king have to pay taxes? No. And he says, well, uh, and you're a son. So guess what? You're exempt. Because I own everything. Oh. Now we're talking. That's what the people that were that thought that Messiah came against Rome. Now we're talking. Let's go let him have it. No. You know what he says next? I mean, Peter's probably thinking to himself, so I never have to pay taxes because I belong to your kingdom, right? <laughs> I heard the amen. Sure. Honestly, that is what Jesus was saying. But you know what? Jesus' response was this. But don't offend. But don't offend. Why? Why are you worried about them? Because some of them I'm going to save. Don't offend. Don't offend. So we want to be like our Lord? Don't offend. That's why we submit. For the Lord's sake. And you know, I've gotten some really good conversations last week. I mean, I don't, we can go to a lot of different directions. I mean, oh, but wait a minute. So, I mean, you got the abortion clinic out there. I mean, can we, what can we do? I mean, can, can we do something? I mean, that seems like that's not right. And when you say, when he says don't offend, what, what does that mean? Well, you could pray. You can even go out there and get into very peaceful conversations with people about the truth. But we're not to shake our fist at the governing authorities. Submit to the governing authorities because it honors Christ. Now last time we mentioned that there are times when the government overreaches and they stop being what God has ordained for them, Romans 13. But we're not to fight the government in a rebellious way. Paul never did. Jesus never did. So how do you fight when a government steps outside of where God wants them? You say... You blitz Facebook with all kinds of sayings and memes and statements, right? Isn't that what we do? No. No. You remember that our battle isn't a flesh and blood battle, Ephesians 6. Or you can listen to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. Listen to this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now sometimes political positions against the truth can seem like fortresses, don't they? Do you realize that we're called to destroy those kinds of fortresses? And this is the reason why I made the point about the abortion clinic, because 
there are some that have thought, oh, destroying fortresses, so we just go blow up the clinic. No. No. It's not what he means. We're called to destroy those kinds of fortresses, but not by the flesh. So how? Look at verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So let me give you a few thoughts from that passage on how to fight. First, identify that thing as a speculation. Pro-choice statement, just speculation. Second, recognize the scripture that it opposes. The issue is whatever is raised up against God's knowledge. Now, what's God's knowledge? The Bible, right? The Word. And then thirdly, he says, take every thought that they are trying to get you to embrace and make it a captive. Make that thought a captive. Make it a prisoner. Chain it up. That's how you fight, see? You fight at that level. <clears throat> you bring the appropriate, tr- appropriate truth to say, yeah, that's wrong. Why? Because God says. God says this, right? All right, four more to get to. Four more areas related to submission that we have to work through. Number three, you have to deal with the scope. You have to deal with the scope. What is the scope of our submission, the extent of it? How far do we take it? Look back to 1 Peter 2.13. To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Peter says, the scope of our submission to the governing authorities is every human institution. So, all right, what's the Greek word for every? It's just like our English word, every. Okay? Every. Every single one. We have to also look at that word, human institution. It's a very fascinating word. It's the Greek kathesis, and it's, uh, it's where we get creature or, or creation from. And so it means a thing created. 2 Corinthians 5.17 In Christ, he is a new catesis, a new creature. So is Peter, is he saying that we are to submit to every human creature? Oh boy. No. But let me see if I can explain this in a simple way. He says every, and that's not that hard to understand. It means just what it says. So we need to understand what the word create, creation or creature or institution means. And when you study where this word occurs throughout the whole Bible, it is always a thing produced by God and never a thing produced by man. You could call it an enterprise or an activity of God. An organized thing produced by God. That probably would, would even be a better way to understand this word. 
You could translate it this way. A thing designed by God. So what Peter is saying is, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every organized thing designed by God. Humans have put it together, but its actual design is God. You say, why call it a human institution? Because the idea is this. Submit to every God-ordained and designed human institution. That's how you should understand it. Submit to every God-ordained and designed human institution. And you remember Romans 13 tells us that God has ordained every single government. You see, man... It does say that, but aren't the governments something that man has produced? And the answer to that is yes. God ordained, man produced. So God works through that government to keep civil civil organization from becoming chaos. Let me say it this way. When we talk about it that way, government then is more about protection than direction. And that's super important. I'm going to show you that here in a moment. It is more about protection than direction. When the government steps in thinking that it can direct your life for good, it's wrong. It can protect it. And then it's right. This is why we are struggling these days at such a mighty level. I'm going to show you here in a moment. You say, well, I mean, but looking at it negatively, I mean, there have been some pretty important people making some pretty bad decisions lately in our country. I mean, we've had judges and governors and presidents and congressmen that don't make... The, the most shining, you know, decisions. Are we submit to, supposed to submit to them? Well, I'll tell you what, all throughout the Bible there have been judges and kings that have made bad decisions and God has called them, the people of, you know, under them to submit to those kinds of leaders. In Daniel 9.10, it says, We haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 11, the curse has been poured out on us. Verse 12, God has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. And of course, he's talking about the captivity to Babylon. And so Israel has had bad rulers before. Micah 7, verse 2, the godly person has perished from the land. Verse 3, the prince asks also the judge for a bribe. I mean, imagine a government where there are shady things going on. God has designed it for humans to live by bad people come around. And what's our response? Peter says, submit. By the way, don't forget who the rulers are during Paul and Peter's day. Nero and some others. 
None of them are good. Pilate, Herod, Felix, Festus. None of them were good. None. And yet Paul writes Romans 13. Peter writes 1 Peter 2. Both saying, submit to the governing authorities. So what's the point? The point is, be subject to all that authority in every age because God has appointed them. And that's the thing that Paul had to remember in Acts 23 when the guy ordered for Paul to be struck on the mouth. you remember that? you remember what Paul said? I'll remind you. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Whoa! Paul said that. And they told Paul, hey, this is the high priest. And then Paul quoted Exodus twenty two twenty eight, where it says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He corrected himself. Knowing that all of the rulers there in Israel were bad. He corrected himself. Yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. It's a good example. Now what Peter means in 1 Peter 2 is leadership at any level. Leadership authority at any level. You say, are you sure? Yeah, look at the end of verse 13. Whether to a king as one in authority. Who's the king over over Peter? Nero, evil guy. Peter says, Nero has authority over me. What kind of authority? Look at verse 14. They are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now the job of the government can be boiled down to two things. Here they are. Punish the evildoers. Praise the ones that do right. Or reward them. That's it. It's all a government is called by God to do. So as far as Nero for Peter, he, he's got nothing to worry about. I mean, as long as Peter doesn't do evil and he does what is right, then he should have no problem submitting to Nero. You say, but didn't Nero have Peter killed? Wasn't he the guy that was lighting up Christians as torches in his garden? Yeah. Yeah, to all of that. But neither Paul nor Peter nor Jesus says, submit to them unless they threaten to take your life and then don't. They don't say that. And the fact that Peter never fought it means he understood that he was not doing evil and was doing right when Nero crucified Peter upside down. Now, by the way, when a government goes the other direction, and stops punishing evildoers, and stops rewarding those who do good, then that government is not doing what God established it for. That's the problem with the whole defund the police deal. That's why it's a problem. You can... By the way, you could go the other way too. When a government does those two things, it is functioning as God wants it. Punishing evildoers, praising or rewarding those that do good, whether it is socialistic or communistic 
or capitalistic. It doesn't matter. The more the government moves in the direction where it ignores the evildoers for punishment and ignores the doers of good for reward, then it reveals that it's broken. And it is operating outside of its design by God. And you begin to pray for that government that, at that level. Now the same thing is said in Romans 13. Another thing to think about is that word punishment. In Romans 13, he says, the sword. God has, by the way, uh, God's given the government the power of the sword. Okay, it's not that hard to figure out the sword, what the sword is. The sword wasn't, uh, you know, like a, you know, a rod, you know, of discipline to the bottom. Okay. The sword was, you know, Peter didn't use it too well. I mean, you know, he tried to take the guy's head off and only cut his ear. Okay, but the idea of the sword was capital punishment. Final punishment. Sometimes, by the way, we look at that passage in Exodus and Matthew 5 where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sometimes I, I think we, we look at that passage as a passage of vengeance or personal retaliation like the Lord is giving us you know, freedom to do that. That's not actually what the passage is saying. What it means is you take an eye and the role of the God-ordained government will be able to take your eye. You take a tooth and the God-ordained body of rulership will take your tooth. And it'll just be, they'll just keep it as it is. They won't go further than that. They won't, there won't be overreach because there are laws and rules in place for that. That's the idea of it. And so what this area of submission has to do with is that the scope of it extends to all forms of structured governing authorities, human institutions, a king or governor sent by the king to do one of two things, punish evildoers or reward the ones who do good, who obey the law. And in a society where there is a decline in that, where the rights of the criminal are greater than the rights of the good and the obedient, that society moves away from God. From what God has ordained. Now let me make a tie to our own society. I already sort of mentioned this already so you can see this. But I really want you to see this. It says the king and to governors sent by him. You have the larger authority and you have the under authorities that carry out the larger one. Who are these under authorities? They are the police. That is clearly what he has in mind. Two years ago, when the movement to defund the police began, that was a movement against 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. That's what was wrong with it. 
It was a statement against God. We cut the legs of our civil accountability from us that God has given. So if you want to be the citizen in this world to show them the power of the gospel, you do one thing. You submit to the governing authorities. In order to submit to the governing authorities, you have to deal with a few things that will help you to do this. First, deal with the command. Second, deal with the motive for the Lord's sake. Third, deal with the scope, every human institution. Fourth, you have to deal with the plan. And that's there in verse 15. The plan. What is God's plan with all this submission? Verse 15, look at it. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now why does God want us to be like this? Because it's his will. What do you mean by it's his will? For what? To connect us into a life of obeying his will in a life of attracting unbelievers to Christ, silencing them so that they will hear the gospel. You know what God's will is? What what God's plan is? It is to submit yourselves to every human institution that God ordained. That's it. And when we work at that, He uses it as gospel impact. And we need to look at this word ignorance. It it means more than just lacking knowledge. It means willful, rebellious hostility against the truth. It means a rejection of the truth. The word foolish means without sense or void of reason, empty with regards to sense. And then the word silence, it means to put a muzzle on or like Jesus with the stormy waves to quiet the waves. That's how that word was used. So how do you muzzle the foolish person that is the unbeliever? By your good citizenship. By your above reproach life. I want you to see this from Titus. Turn to Titus for a moment. This is such a remarkable little epistle. Titus is a letter on evangelism. So if he says in 1 Peter... All of this has impact on the lost, right? On your evangelism. We would expect that if Titus is writing about evangelism, he's going to touch on this. Watch this. Titus is a letter urging these believers on this island to commit themselves to sharing the gospel. I like how one uh, brother put it that I was talking to. Recently, this island can be called Depraved Island, you know. He was on Depraved Island, you know. Notice how Titus presents the Lord. See it for yourself. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. God, our Savior. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Christ Jesus, our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10. God, our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Chapter... Uh, 3 verse 4, God our Savior. Chapter 3 verse 6, Jesus Christ our Savior. There are not a lot lot of verses in Titus. 
Okay? And they all, a lot of them have that. Paul, what are you trying to tell me? Um, wish you could just spell it out and say it. I mean, well, I'm trying to tell you that God is a saving God who saves through an amazing and gracious Savior named Jesus Christ the Lord. Do you, you have that? Okay. Now take that and then look at chapter 1, verse 10. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of circumcision, who must be what? Silenced. Because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach. Why do we need to silence these people? Well, he says it because they're upsetting families. Why is that a big deal? Because he's committed to evangelism. You can't really be committed to evangelism if you're allowing the people to be like this because they're going to get confused and thinking that, wait a minute, I thought the gospel was to change people's lives and yet they're claiming Christ but living like that. You have to silence that. You need to silence people that claim to follow God but teach false doctrine. Now that's one kind of silencing. And the reason is so the gospel can go out in a clear way. But there's a second kind of silencing. And I'll show it to you. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Remind whom? The ones who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. To do what? Be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. All right, but what does the submission actually look like? Verse 2, to malign no one. And he keeps going, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And all those things are related to, you know, how a person responds to the authorities over them. And then in verse 3, he reminds them, what they used to be like as unbelievers. Don't get all judgy, he said. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's how we used to be. What happened? Verse 4, But when the kindness of, of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You see, God had to change us. He had to transform us by his mercy. You know what? Into what? People that would submit. We weren't interested in that before. I know I wasn't. You see, his plan to save people, preach the word, yes, but also practice true godliness in living. How? Submit to the rulers, submit to the authorities. Which ones? Peter says, every human institution. At school? Yes. At work? Yes. In the home? Yes. Before your governing authorities in the state and nation? Yes. So the idea is to be above reproach. 
And God uses that to get the gospel to have impact on their lives. There's a fifth thing you have to deal with in order to have submission. You have to deal with the attitude. And this, this is verse 16. And this is an incredible thing to say. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Act like a man who has freedom. Do we have freedom as Christians? Well, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. It says he's redeemed us. Not with gold or silver, but with precious blood. To be redeemed is to be taken out of the slavery called called sin. So he got our freedom back for us. So yes, we are free. We are free. You know the easiest people to talk to about the issue of race? Christians. True Christians. Why? Because we're free. Finally free to love all people as Christ does. There's only one color that we see. So, okay, what color is it? Red. The blood of Christ. Purchased for us. Our freedom. And through the blood, we love. So what does Peter mean? Kiss to maker, verse 16. He's a commentator. One of those smart Bible guys. He says this about freedom. He was actually quoting Martin Luther. Martin Luther explained the concept freedom in his characteristic pithy style. Quote, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. The Christian is free from enslavement that promotes evil. Instead, he uses his freedom to serve his God and to love his fellow man. The more he demonstrates his willingness to serve, the more he experiences true freedom. The Christian conducts himself in public life as God's elect. He is free without any fear as long as he serves God in absolute obedience. And so our submission to the governing authorities demonstrates that we, that we really have been set free by Christ's salvation. We are the freedom people. I mean, we are free, therefore we submit to the governing authorities. And that's the idea behind verse 16. Galatians 5, 1 and 13, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Romans six sixteen. having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness, slaves to do what is right. So we're freed to serve God, So how does God want us serving Him? Don't use your freedom 
as a covering for evil. That's how. So what does that mean? This is a person who says he's free in Christ, you do whatever he wants, and so he lives outside of man's rules. I don't pay taxes. I'm free. I don't follow laws that say I can't bomb abortion clinics. I'm free. I'm free to say whatever I want in the name of fixing the broken government. Peter says, no, you're not free to do that. What am I free to do? Well, whatever a bond slave of God does. What's that? The Lord's will. What's that? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And go about just loving others. You say, so I can't ever point out when things are against God and His will? No, that's when you do point it out. So, oh, but hey, by the way, God says this, and you're doing this. Just pointing that out. You do it in a gentle way, honoring the Lord. Last point here, number six. If we're going to be those people that submit to the governing authorities, you have to deal with the application. What's the application? Verse 17, four directions of life. Look at verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Four directions. First direction. I mean, everybody is born in the image of God, so honor all people. You'll never go wrong if you just take that kind of approach. I mean, you might think to yourself, well, I mean, that person doesn't deserve you know, my honor, for me to give him honor. I mean, he isn't really my supervisor. He isn't really my boss. Hey, just honor him. Just honor him. Notice the next direction. Love the brotherhood. Who's that? Christians. Philippians 2. So important to think of others as more important than yourselves. And we're talking about Christians. To see yourself under other brothers or sisters in Christ. What's the leadership chain in the church? Who cares? Jesus. That's it. It's just Jesus. He is the head. Then just honor others. Love the brotherhood. Just love everyone. And then the third direction, God, fear God. You say, well, of course. Why does he put God in this list? Boy, how we can forget. I mean, how many times do you know the Lord's will, but you don't do it? That's not fearing him. And then finally, the last direction, honor the king. And now we're back to where we started. When an unbeliever sees that you even have honor for that despised king that everyone hates, even though it might be clear you never voted for him, 
That speaks. That's big. All right, as we conclude here, what's all this tell us about our relationship to the world? We're in it. We're not of it. And we're in it as a citizen. Citizen of Christ first in His kingdom. But a citizen to this world with purpose. And as we deal with those six areas, we do it because God might save somebody. He might save somebody. And oh, that we could be vessels of that kind of evangelism. Amen? Amen? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we want to put ourselves out before you as people who are being called to do something that's difficult, but we want to do it because you call us to it. So will you help us, Lord, to have that kind of attitude, to have that kind of approach. And we would do it, Lord, for one reason, to bring you glory. We love you. Use it all, Lord, to point people to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.